how can a greater historical perspective strengthen scholarship in the field of communication and media studies as a whole? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Cristina Mislan is this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Dr. Cristina Mislan, who's an associate professor in journalism studies at the Missouri School of Journalism at the University of Missouri at Columbia. Cristina did her BA at Louisiana State University, specializing in English and psychology. At the same university, she did her master's degree in mass communication, and then her PhD was at Penn State University, where she specialized in mass communication with a Latin American graduate student minor. She has been a professor at the Missouri School of Journalism uh, since August of 2014, uh, first as an assistant professor, now as an associate professor, where she's also been affiliated um, with three other departments in addition to journalism, with women and gender studies, with peace studies, and with black studies. She's a very, very prolific author, uh, has published uh, more than a dozen uh, peer-reviewed journal articles in some of the top venues of the field, like journalism, journalism studies, etc., uh, etc., et and has not one, but two books in progress. Fugitive Possibilities, Black Writers and Cuba After Revolution, and Living and Dying in Sacrifice Zones, Climate Blues in Southern Louisiana and Puerto Rico. Stina is the recipient of many awards and is also a leader in key institutions of our field. She's presently the chair of the Communication History Division at the International Communication Association. Cristina, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. So, so tell us, Cristina, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Yeah, um, I feel like I have to do an oral history. <laughs> um, so for me, I guess I should say that I always had really great mentors. Um, mostly, I will um, I have to give a shout out to all the women professors and teachers I've had since I started public school in Louisiana. Um, and then um, I had, I've always had really amazing women um, in my life who encouraged me to keep 
to keep moving forward, to keep going. And so when I started, when I did my master's, I worked with um, a really um, brilliant um, scholar, histor media historian, um, Jinx Broussard, um, who is at LSU still. And um, she was one of the, not the only one, but one of the people who pushed me to continue and go into PhD. And with her is when I started doing research on um, the history of the black press. Um, and I really got interested in, um, I mean, I'd always been interested in um, U.S. Um, racial politics, um, especially because I grew up in Louisiana. And so um, I think that has a lot to do with why I was interested in studying more racial politics and then working with, I thought I wanted to do journalism because I always wanted to be a writer. Um, so that hence my English background. But um, I... Uh, kind of found out that like I wouldn't be able to sustain myself <laughs> trying to become some sort of starving artist. I didn't want to do that. So um so I stayed in grad school and I followed Dr. Broussard's advice to keep doing research and I could write. I could still be a writer. I could um still, you know, do write about the things that I wanted to write about um in more nonfiction ways. But um that's kind of what I think led me to become a professor is that um and I've always liked being in a classroom and on, you know, university campus. I was maybe always a nerd and um, just wanted to keep reading and writing and also keep um, learning more, just constantly wanting to learn more and having mentors and professors who encouraged me to keep doing it, who told me that um, I was good at what I was doing. Um, and so, that potentially I would um, find um, a really good, you know, a career in being an academic. Very interesting. So, so how was the transition to PhD? You talked about, you know, transition to master's very mm -hmm. briefly, but, um, and how's the change from Louisiana State to Penn State from oh, <laughs> to University Park, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, um, State College. Yes. Um, yeah, State College. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, it was huge. You know, that was the first time I moved outside of Louisiana. I had lived all my life in Louisiana and deep south outside of New Orleans. And so um, moving to Penn State was, um, and moving to Pennsylvania, even though like I was in State College, so I'm not even sure. Sometimes when you live in a college town, it doesn't feel like you're in an actual place. <laughs> um but um, yeah, it was it was big. It was a, a, a huge learning curve. Um, but I was also really excited because I knew I was going to be doing what I already like to do, which is like read a lot, <laughs> write a lot. Um, but of course, it was a lot of work. It was also getting to know a different part of the country, cultures. Um, Penn State was huge. I thought LSU was big, but Penn State, I think, is even bigger than LSU. Um, I didn't care for going from football school to football school, but um, I think that's the nature of what happens when you um, go to the land grants, um, which I'm at a football school again now at the University of Missouri. So somehow I keep coming to these football universities. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, there, was a, there was a lot that I learned, but I also, again, was very adamant about finding community. Um, so when I first my first year in the PhD program um, in the College of Communication at Penn State, 
the cohort was pretty big. And so immediately, um, I think we developed a really good community amongst us. And so I think that kind of camaraderie was really key to my survival. So I think everybody's survival. And so I, this is something I tell grad students when they come here is that, you know, don't isolate yourself. Um, absolutely create, and it doesn't need to be community with your own, the same cohort, but at least on campus across programs. And I did that too. Um, I started to um, kind of venture out and um, just really develop a community there that would help me feel good while I was what seemed like in the middle of nowhere. I was there for like five years. So I think you need community um, because it's so easy to get lost in the classes and in all the work that you're having to do as a PhD student. Um, but finding that kind of work-life balance is really important. So um, it, but it wasn't like hard for me to do that because I've always been kind of that person where I knew, I've always known that I, I need a work-life balance. Um, so it was hard work, but I, I figured out how to navigate it what, because of other people who were there to help me. And, and in terms of your research interest, right? Because you focus on COM, but you also have a Latin American study, yes. uh, yeah. minor essentially. Mm -hmm. Certificate. Um, so, how did that come about? How did you weave your own personal research interests given the institutional opportunities? Yes. So, I knew that um, I knew kind of the areas I was interested in. And I mentioned this in, to, in the talk, you know, I've, I've always been kind of interested in looking at the way that like Black and Brown communities intersect. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do more research on that. Um, and, um, so my, I think I did my master's thesis. I don't even, what was my master's thesis was related to the black press. It didn't necessarily have anything to do with solidarity politics, like my um, dissertation, but, um, it's still kind of, it, I knew I was still wanted to do something related to racial politics, to media, to the history of alternative media. And then I had um, I, the, so John Nichols, who was at the time, he was, he's a um, Cuban radio scholar. And um, he was at the time um, the Dean for graduate studies um, or associate Dean for graduate studies. And he told me about um, this person who in the 60s had been a um, black nationalist in the US and who in the early 60s fled the US um, to go to Cuba and was in exile there for like a year, two years. And so while he was there, started a radio program. And that radio program was called Radio Free Dixie. And I also by then was interested um, and studying more about Cuba, about the Caribbean, you know, being Puerto Rican, of course, like, you know, personally, I'm, I'm, I was interested in learning more um, and diving deeper into actual scholarship um, to learn more about the, the history of the region and why I always felt this, like, um, need to want to intersect my experiences and what I saw living in the Deep South in the U.S., with the Caribbean. Um, and so I, cause I saw those and I 
I had those experiences, but I didn't necessarily have the scholarly knowledge. Um, and so that story that um, John um, Nichols told me, I thought this is this would be the perfect way to intersect what I'm personally interested in, um, and then you know, and kind of see where that goes. Um, and so it was so that that actually that story about that radio program Ready for Dixie became my dissertation, and that's what. Um, so because I was doing that, then I had to seek out classes outside of the College of Communications to um, do more of the work in the background on Latin America and the Caribbean um, from like a historical perspective, cultural, um, social perspective. And so I started taking more classes and it ended up being that Penn State had this Latin American graduate studies minor. Um, and, you know, even though people told me it wouldn't do anything for like my marketability, <laughs> I still wanted to do it because I needed I needed it. And so um, and I'm glad and I don't regret it because it gave me so much more knowledge um, than if I had just studied U.S. scholars. Um, and so it really allowed me to look at the work that the scholarship that's coming outside of the U.S. Um, and potentially think about how Latin American and Caribbean scholars are also kind of inf informing the work that I'm doing. Because um, I think often right within scholarship and academia, it's so U.S. centered. Um, and so it's always like, it's it's kind of reinforcing that like, um, kind of these U.S. imperialist notions of even like what academic, who, who are the academics that get recognized in scholarship. But, and when you're in the U.S., it's hard to, to remind yourself to, to expand beyond the U.S., even because you are, because I am a U.S. West, you know, based scholar. And so, and I grew up here, but um, I think having that kind of broader, more transnational lens um, made my work better. And what has been the reception to that side of your work, that dimension of your work? As you said, I mean, in the within the US, um, there is not the same level of appreciation of scholarship in Latin America, not on Latin America, but in Latin America, there is of scholarship saying continental Europe, right? Um, so what have you experienced personally as a scholar in terms of, you know, the reception of your ideas in, you know, the review process, in seminars, in, in the different venues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think at least my experience has been because I'm interested in intersecting um, or thinking about U.S. politics through an international lens, through more of a global lens. Um, there's more excitement in many ways for that. Um, I have found that people are excited about um, more scholars doing that work of like kind of decentralizing U.S. scholarship, decentralizing um, Eurocentric um, U.S. politics. And so, um, and it, you know, of course I'm like far from the only person doing this. And so I think, but I, I do think that more, especially in media studies and communication studies, we don't have these conversations or this research enough. I think that it's happening in other programs and in other disciplines. Like if I was working in like, you know, um, I don't know, I think about like West Coast race and ethnic studies programs, I would be having, <laughs> I would be with people who are constantly having these conversations. 
Um, and I'm very conscious of that. Whereas like, I think in journalism studies and media and communication studies, we're not having, the, having these conversations enough. Even if I think about like, you know, um, I don't know if it's okay to critique ICA on here, but like, even if I think about ICA, right? It's supposed to be internationally based, but it often feels still like it centers US scholarship, right? And so we've been with the communication history division trying to figure out how to not only diverse, uh, diversify um, communication history in terms of within the US, because that's a problem, but also internationalizing it is another layer. And so I think that's, um, so I, I would say that the, the my work when I have presented it in terms of, or like publishing it, um, I've had, um, I feel good about what I've been able to do, and when I'm able when I'm able to bring this this perspective into um, sometimes very like white patriarchal dominated spaces, um, that I have had you know kind of good experiences doing that. Um, I do think that when it comes to publishing. Sometimes it can be hard if you're depending on the journals that you pub that you decide to publish. So in that, for that reason, I've haven't always published in the traditional kind of what's seen as high quality. Like I'm I'm not someone who's gonna, I'm not gonna send, or I haven't yet at least set my work to journal of communication. Um instead, I'm sending it to critical cultural studies communication kind of journals. I'm sending it to feminist media studies. I'm sending my work to places where I have found that is more um, kind of people are more receptive to my research versus like the traditional paradigm, if you will, in media and communication studies. I'm also right now at the moment um, trying to um, since uh, even though I'm working on these book projects, there are a couple of uh, article journal articles that I want to work on. And I'm thinking I want to send one to like a more interdisciplinary journal. So I'm looking there too at interdisciplinary journals where they're taking different kinds of writing and they're taking um, people who are at the intersections of different, you know, fields of thought, right? Um, or schools of thought, I should say. Um, so I think, I think I've, because I've purposely have um, in, or intentionally chosen to send my stuff to places that um, I know will be more receptive to the work. My experiences have been um, have been good. I mean, I you know, and and of course, with the re peer review process, there's always <laughs> bumps. Um, but one one thing I've learned is that you just got to keep working on it and you keep learning and you keep rewriting and you make it better. And as you make it better, you get your you get your work out there. And that's been my experience. Yeah. But if, yeah, I mean, it hasn't always been easy. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So so to follow up on this, in your leadership role at ICA, um, so what do you see as sort of the main challenges to internationalize? The, the association and by implication the field and the main you know strategies that have worked mm -hmm. so far to do that yeah so I mean you know I don't have as like my institutional memory of ICA isn't that long I mean if this is the I was vice chair for two years for com history 
and then I'm chairing, this is my first year chairing, and I'll chair another year for my service. Um, but so far, since I've been participating, um, one thing that I think is a challenge is that, you know, place. So ICA often, and it, this is, has been something that I, has been widely criticized and widely shared within the ICA community, is that where ICA often takes place is not accessible to a lot of people around the world. <laughs> um, and so that's a huge issue. But this year, for instance, there's yes. so many speakers from countries who need, you know, where you need a visa that it has become very complicated for people. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, like so just like barriers that people have to even be able to travel, but also cost. Um, like, so next year, I see it's going to be in Australia. <laughs> that, you know, I'm I'm already thinking about, like, how, okay, how many resources do I have from Mizzou to help? Like, what, wh where are we going to get? And that's coming from a U.S. university that has resources. Um, of course, I don't, you know, I have the privilege of being a U.S. citizen. So travel is much easier than potentially people who... Um, have different statuses within the U.S., but also, of course, scholars around the world, right? And so that gets complicated. Um, and so I know that, like, if I'm thinking about cost, then, of course, lots of other scholars are thinking about not only cost, but all, you know, all the other, um, you know, visa and other, I'm sure, um, things that they have to also, logistics that they have to work around to even go. Um, so I think that's a huge part of the, the, the kind of challenges, accessibility, um, for sure. Um, I would say, you know, the other thing, I guess, the other, I, I do think ICA, at least for me, if I compare ICA to other conferences, other national U.S. conferences, I think ICA offers more, like, a broader intellectual community, I would say, um, um, and I know that there's even, you know, there's also other smaller, like, um, I haven't been, but I know that IMCR, a lot of people talk about IMCR, like, it's really great. And one year I will go, I do have plans at some point to go. So I do think that there are probably, um, there are other community spaces, other communal, like, conference spaces that are probably better at dealing with these things. And, and part of it, you know, I see is huge, other conferences like IMCR is much smaller. Um, and so I think that's part of it too. The other thing that came up when I went, when, when did we go to Prague? Was that last year or the year before? 2018, I believe. Yeah, okay. So the issue with going to some places too, and this came up in Prague is that, you know, people were experiencing like, um, were being assaulted on the streets you know, like, yeah, experiencing like racism and people coming. Yeah. And so that was a big thing at ICA. And so I think ICA hasn't always thought about the politics of the place that people are going um, as well. And I'm not suggesting that only is a thing that we should think about outside of the U.S. I absolutely think we should also think about that when it's in the U.S. as well. Right. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I, the other thing, too, you know, in terms of economics, right, like how much it is to, you know, for registration and to be a member, you know, so again, accessibility, um, safety for especially scholars of color, um, you know, there's lots of politics around that in terms of like the geographic space 
for scholars might not always be um, the safest place. Um, and so I think there's, um, and you know, I think with lots of like kind of the the rise of, um, you know, um, like nationalist right-wing um, autocratic uh, governments, um, this is probably something that ICA might wanna really think about, you know, moving forward as well. I mean, I think that's really important, but yeah, I, I remember in Prague that um, there were some issues um, and, and that people, um, particularly women of color were facing on, on the streets. And so I don't want to single out Prague as the only, but I, that was just, that to me stood out because of the stories that I heard. Um, but I, this has happened in other um, ICA um, on other years as well. Um, so that's, those are like the, the big challenges. I know for like come of come history division, I think we have, I mean, some of our challenges, it's like, it's that, because they're part of a bigger, we're part of a bigger, right, conference. So we have to also deal with issues of like accessibility, et cetera. But also we're struggling with like membership. And so I think part part of that is um, there's there are less people um, doing, I don't, it's not that there are less people doing media history, but it's definitely, um, the kind of traditional media history is definitely um, not, I, would, I don't know if it's say it's like not as popular right now, but there's there's just like a lack of interest in, in, in scholarship around like, not just journalism history, but like media and comm history. And so we're trying to figure out how to like, get more excitement and people to want to do that work because even when people are doing historical work they might send it to another division and not think of us right and so we're trying to figure those things out so and it's also a very again not just like um, U.S. space but it's also a very white space and lots of white men so trying to figure out how to um, broaden and get more scholars of color um, non-U.S. scholars um, non-U.S. scholars of color. Um, those are some of the things that we're working on. Now, let me ask you, because what you're describing, it's not just about the present, ironically speaking, the field in general has not been very historically oriented. Yes. The other social sciences, which are more, I mean, sociology, anthropology, poli-sci, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it is more of a focus. So why do you think COM has been so present oriented? Ooh. <laughs> um, great question. Why do I so and you know the, just my the, what I'm about to say is completely based off of um my personal opinion thoughts. I have you know no idea whether this is actually um, real for anyone else or can be um, supported by any kind of evidence. I do think that there's a kind of immediacy that scholars in communication and media get like enwrapped in, right? There's like, there's all, because, because we're also in a field that's very like technologically focused um, as, as, the, with the evolution of kind of media technologies, I think there's like a race to want to keep up 
with that in the scholarly world. Um, and so I wonder if that's part of it, you know, I mean, I think we can, you know, I often think about like, um, what is it, Neo Postman's amusing ourselves to death <laughs> of just like how um, it almost seems like maybe scholars are also amusing ourselves to death, right, as we're trying to continue to, you know, keep up with their race um, for technology. And now, for instance, here where I'm at, you know, big data is a big thing and, and AI, everybody's, you know, everything is AI. And so, um, but we lose the historical perspective of, you know, you know, thinking about meeting communication outside of the kind of quote idea of new media, right? That there's, you know, they, I, I, I like this, I, I don't know who said this, but like, there's nothing new about new media. Um, these are just like, you know, more um, evolved, you know, technology, industrial, right, technologies, right, if we, we can go back to think to, I think, you know, James Carey's work on um, kind of um, industrial um, revolutions and how the, you know, creation of, um, was it the steamboat <laughs> was like a form of technology that like then introduced faster forms of communication. And of course, that's like also very US centric because you we could also go around the world to look at different technologies and when they were invented and how they changed communication. Um, and so I think, you know, just uh, before I like go off into some tangent, I think um, there's, yeah, I think there's something like effective about the immediate nature of us wanting to always be as fast as technologies are moving for some, you know, and my, my, many of my students are um, kind of, there's an allure to that because it's also about how, how much can you publish, right? And so if you can do research that's fast, like looking at tweets, and I'm not trying to devalue <laughs> that research because that's important. It's just that it's not the only thing that we should be doing. But we all, you know, there's there's so many scholars who um, are already doing that work. Um, and so then we get, um, you know, phrases like Twitter revolution, which I think is, um, Twitter of course has played roles, you know, in um, social movements, you know, which is something I've done some research on, but it also is very limited, you know, and so what um, I think, I think we lose a, a historical perspective actually would give us more insight into the role that like social media plays, for instance, in kind of our everyday lives. Um, but it's often, we often lose that historical context. Very interesting. And now since you mentioned the students um, and you mentioned their projects and their aspirations, and you talked about mentorship at the beginning of this conversation. Switching gears, you know, um, what's your mentorship style, and and what are your practices uh, in terms of being a teacher, a mentor, working with different you know, levels of you know, undergraduate, graduate students? Um, what are some lessons learned? Uh, mm. Yeah, so. I have worked with lots of master's students um, here because the master's students here program here is pretty um, 
it's it's getting smaller, but um, it's a um, it's a big program, like um, comparable to maybe other um, university, other journalism schools are communication college colleges, you know, college of communications. Um, and so, um, you know, I and and I've mentored and um, have advised um, PhD students as well. Um, I had a great advisor as a PhD student. Um, his name was uh, is Michael Lasky. Um, he's no longer at Penn State, but um, I learned a lot from him. As like, um, I learned a lot from him as an educator and as an advisor. And I also learned from other professors who um, were not necessarily my advisors, but I absolutely developed a mentorship relationship with them, like Jinx Broussard. Um, there was another professor at Penn State, Sosire um, Denmoran, Puerto Rican scholar, um, brilliant historian um, who was great and was also my outside committee member, but was also a great mentor. And so um, I really learned from their mentorship and, um, and took that into my own. So some might say that I'm a kind of maybe a little... I maybe more laid back kind of mentor than maybe some of my colleagues. I'm not sure. Um, but I try to develop, you know, um, good relationships with my students, not just in terms of their work for me as like research assistants, but for instance, I think it's important to, you know, co-author with um, students. So that is something that I have done. I've co-authored with my um, largely doctoral students. Um, the master's students who I've worked with, you know, I often, you know, um, encourage them to to keep going into um, PhD if if that's something that they want to do, and I help them in that. And, you know, um, I try to make sure that like they know that I'm, you know, also available as part of like because I, I work with a lot of students of color, so I want them to know that you know I support them and that like I'm like always like uh kind of cheer them on so that they can finish the program um and so you know some of my former students um now like I would argue you know um maybe they would say that I'm still a mentor but I also see them as friends <laughs> as you know and I, I had some mentors where like once I graduated um, the mentorship also turns into a friendship. And I hope that some of my former students feel the same, um, that we can kind of continue these lifelong mentorships. Like I don't want them to end when they finish. I see myself as someone who's always going to be supportive of them and their career um, and help them when I, you know, in however way I can. Um, so, and it, it's really rewarding to see, especially, you know, you have, um, brown and black students who go through the program and you see them finish and you see them go on to do um, work. And like, as we saw today in my talk, you know, Litsi Galarza, who was also my master's student who went on to Penn State to do her PhD, um, recommended me to do this um, talk with the center. So I think it's really cool to see that like students um, are my former students, they're not longer students, but, um, my former students still um, think of me and see me as like important, you know, someone who plays an important role um, in their life and in their career. So it's really, um, yeah, it, it's one of the the things that I really enjoy about being an academic is working with really good and smart students. Excellent. Now, switching gears again, um, 
you know, you talked about the place of Latin American scholarship in the field. Um, you yourself are from Puerto Rico, but, you know, spent your childhood and, you know, later on in the U.S., in Louisiana. Uh, Puerto Rico is within Latin America, but the Puerto Rican population in the U.S. is a central, you know, uh, component of the Latinx U.S. Mm -hmm. population. And one of your books talk about climate change, you know, you know, between you know the deep south and Puerto Rico. So there are areas of resonance, but also areas of difference. Um, so how do you see the state of Latinx or Latino, Latina, Latine media studies, right? As a subfield within the broader conversation in communication and media studies. What are the main challenges that you see now? What are the main opportunities or avenues moving forward? And, and how do you see the connection with Latin American media studies? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's different from that, it's related, but different. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, one thing that, and I was, I hope that my talk um, did this today is often I've been, in, I've been in too many spaces, um, whether this is with students or at conferences where, um, well, my experiences have with Latinx communities and then with Latin American communities. I'll talk about them separately, right? Um, and but in some ways, it's similar that I've been in these spaces that are there. And I don't know if it's because we're also um, part. If we're having these conversations, we're part of a, a class, right? That like a kind of that is, um, you know, middle um, class um, academics, um, intellectual class, right? And so um, one of the things that I think is challenging is within media and community, I think this is different in other programs, but within media and communication studies that um, the conversations, um, the scholarship, the kind of, um, the ways that we think about, you know, race and ethnicity and how we conceptualize them often um, are not complicated enough. <laughs> um, I think we're off, I, I find myself too often when I am in um, kind of in spaces where we're thinking through Latinx, for instance, identity, it's often kind of whitewashed and very Euro-centered and very Euro-specific. Um, you know, I've been in conferences where if I am around Latin American scholars, it's very, um, it's not, it doesn't intersect with mainland Latinx communities at all. And so there seems to be um, some, how should I say this? Um, sometimes it can feel a bit isolating, I guess, right? And so um, and so I think that's the, I think what I hope to do with my research is to say that there's actually like ways that we can intersect and think about shared experiences across racial, ethnic, and geographical identities, right? And across national identities. So like, for instance, I find that I often, my work has much more in common with, um, you know, um, Chicana feminist studies than it does with, <laughs> you know, Latin, Latinx media studies, right? Or with race and ethnic studies programs where you have people doing the, in, the intersections of um, 
Latinx, Ameri US American communities and, and indigeneity, right? Because people are much more thinking about kind of, you know, scholars like Gloria and Sardua and other kind of like feminist scholars who are thinking about race and ethnicity um, in more expansive ways. And so, um, you know, I, I do though, I, I, I want to acknowledge, but again, this is outside of media, there's, you know, an entire really rich body of work on Afro-Latin America, but it, that, a lot of that research isn't always being brought into <laughs> the work that we're doing in media and communication studies. And that's where I would like to see us expand is to really start expanding how we're thinking about the ways that race and ethnicity gets communicated, for instance, or how they get mediated, right? Um, I think that the essay that I mentioned in the talk by um, Santos Ram Ramos, I think is his last name, is around kind of like, you know, and this is not a communication scholar. So often I'm kind of having, I'm pulling from, I mean, I'm already interdisciplinary, but I'm pulling from other programs to apply it to media studies because there's less of these conversations around expanding race and ethnic um, ethnicity um, and thinking about, you know, all the different complicated layers of that. Um, so I don't know if I, I hope that answers your question. I think I talked more about it, the challenges. No, no, but the challenge is the flip side of a challenge is that it presents opportunities. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so and that, that is a perfect segue to, to our concluding question, which is, you know, if you had magical powers and I could be granted one wish about how you would like the field and the study of media and communication to change, what would you wish for? Mm, yes. Well, I, I'm, I want to um, add one more thing and then I'll answer this question, but you know, one of the things that within media studies, within Latinx, and I know this is for the center of um, Latinx digital media, but I also, I want to encourage that we go beyond the digital, right? And so when um, I want to, like one of the projects at some point that I want to do is to come back to this idea of zines. And one of the things that I think would be really um, great is to look at, you know, the history of zines um, for like at where like, Latinx and Black communities in the U.S. Um, kind of intersected, right? Or the way in which like brown artists um, created scenes um, that were kind of reminiscent of what um, kinds of media making practices Black artists were also participating in. So one example for me, like being Puerto Rican, one example I think of is like the Young Lords Party that's originated from Chicago, modeled after the Black Panther Party, um, who um, just like the Black Panther Party had so much like media material that they produced. And so I think we need more of that, that kind of research. And, and I, you know, there is a scholar who has written a book about Young Lord's Party, um, but she's not a communication studies scholar. So I just, I, I wanna kind of, I mean, and now I can answer the question um, that I think, Maybe what's relevant for the audience here um, in terms of, I think the question is what, um, can you repeat the question? Yes, if you had magical powers and- Yeah, what would I, yeah. Changing the field, right? Mm -hmm. What would you wish for? Yeah, so many, um, but I'll say that I, 
I'm going to wish for an ex a more expansive field and a more expansive field as we think about identity politics, um, as we think about national politics, um, as we think about um, kind of uh, what we study and how we study. So an expansive field that would look beyond the digital, um, not to say that we shouldn't study the digital, but that we potentially study the digital in relation to the rest of the world. Um, and that we don't necessarily just focus on the digital as like its only vacuum and its only space, but that it is um, one form of media among all the different ways that we make media. Um, so, and, and expansive in terms of bringing in more non-US scholarship, um, expansive. Yeah, so I, I think there's there's a lot more that we can do in this field that would just completely radicalize whose voices we center. That's what I would say. Thank you very much. This was fabulous. Thank you, Christina. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Thank you to our audience for staying with us uh, through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again. This was phenomenal. Thank you, Pablo. You're welcome. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.